Hey everyone, you're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you have not heard of us before, you can check us out at www.axecamus.org or come check us out on a Sunday. All right, here is the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. We like to be in control of our environment. We like to be secure in our finances. We tend to respect and regard people. Look up to them who we see as self-made, quote-unquote, right? We look to the the rich and the financially successful or the well-known people of the world, especially if they have some kind of like rags-to-riches story. And we think, what a great woman or what a great man that person is. The more that someone has shown that they can control their own circumstances and have financial security and financial success, the more we tend to regard them and respect them in this society. The bookstores, if you go into them, they're full of, there's a big section in most bookstores called self-help, right? Self-help section. It shows us how to change our circumstances and take on the world and become a self-made man or a self-made woman. If you, for the bookstores that are left, there aren't that many bookstores left, but that's a big section there, self-help. There are very few bookstores with an ask-for-help section. Right? The, the one where you go to to learn to rely on others and to rely on God and things like that. That's not the way we like to think about it. We want self-help. In fact, for many people, not all, but for many people, to ask for help is actually almost unthinkable. Almost unthinkable. The New York Times, uh, there was an article in July of 2007 written by Alina Tujin. At least that's how I'm pronouncing this person's name. I don't know if that's correct, but they're probably not here. If they are, I'm sorry, Alina or whatever your name is. It's the, the article is, why is asking for help so difficult? And, and what the author talks about is that some people have a hard time asking for help because they do not want to seem weak. They do not want to seem needy or incompetent. And so they don't want to ask for help. Or they, they see themselves as if they ask for help, people are going to take that as an opportunity to harm them or to use their need or the fact that they ask for help against them. It's one of the other fears. Another fear that people have is that if you ask somebody for help, they're going to come and help, but they're going to control whatever it is that they help you with. They're going to completely take over control of it and and take over that thing. Or that they're going to give you help, but there are going to be strings attached. You know, I'll help you out, but I'm going to want something from you later. And so people fear those things. People are much more comfortable with asking for help if it's a quid pro quo situation. And don't get political with me, okay? (laughs) Not, we're not going into all that. that was, this has been a long, around a long time since Latin, okay? Uh, so, so that's the yeah, quid pro quo, right? Something for something. Something for something. In other words, I need help for this thing, so if you'll help me with this thing, then I'll help you with that thing. For instance, if we're, as an example, if I told Hunter Croft, the guy who was up here doing worship, I said, look, I will help you find some jeans that fit <laughs> instead of those tights that you wear, which I have no idea how you get them on or off. And you, in return, can edit the sermon so I don't look so heavy, right? (laughs) That quid pro quo has clearly not happened. If you've seen Hunter or the sermons online, um, that's not happening. Or another example. Let's just say before I went to sleep at night, I was to say something to my wife like, listen, I'll give you a nice back rub if you... Never mind. I'm not going (laughs) to... Give you guys a second. All right. Probably should have thought through that one before I started it. (laughs) Many of us... Don't like to ask for help, although in that situation, I don't mind. Uh, but, 
We want, we want to be the self-made person, right? We, we want total control over our lives, total security, or at least, at the very least, we want to appear to everybody else that we're in total control of our circumstances, that we're totally secure. Remember, when Eve was tempted by Satan, the temptation was to be like God. Because if Eve and Adam could be like God, they wouldn't have to rely on God. They'd be in control of their own circumstances. We tend to think that we know best. We kid ourselves into thinking we don't need anything from anyone or that we shouldn't. Oftentimes, that even includes thinking we don't need anything from God. When my son Ethan was about three years old, he had his first moment like this, his first I don't need anything moment. I don't remember what Tiffany and I asked him to do, but I think it was, you know, take a nap or, or something. He wanted to watch a movie or he wanted to play. So whatever three-year-olds do, right? Uh, I didn't pay attention. So, but anyway, we wanted him to take a nap. So we're like, take a nap. You need to take a nap. No, I want to do this thing. And eventually he's like, okay, enough of this. I've, I've had enough of this. I'm going to take care of myself from now on. I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to do my own thing. So he goes over to the closet and gets his little cute little yellow puffy jacket. We were in Virginia at the time in law school, and he was, uh, it was cold outside. So he gets his little jacket on, and he heads out the front door to go take care of himself. He's going to do his own thing. He's going to be in control. And he starts walking. So Tiffany and I get behind, and we're following him you know, at a safe distance. Because we didn't just like, okay, fine, go do your own thing. Now we only got one kid to worry about. We weren't like that. We, we, we followed him, right? We weren't going to just let him go. And he went a long way for a three-year-old, and he never turned around. We eventually had to be like, Ethan, come back. You can't really do that. And we brought him back to the house, but he was going to go. And he would have been, I think he would have just kept going. He'd be a self-made man by now. That's what would have happened. <laughs> but in any case, all of us are like that three-year-old Ethan sometimes. We don't want anyone else in control. We don't want to have to ask for help for anything. We want to make our own rules. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be self-secure. For some of us, that means that we don't see the value and the necessity of prayer. We don't like to ask for help, and we tend to want to see ourselves as the most important thing in the universe. So the idea of praising and thanking God and of asking for his provision and protection does not occur to us as often as it ought to if we were living and thinking in reality and recognizing who we are and who he is. And we've been in a series called Right Side Up. We've been studying Jesus Christ's sermon we call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of the popular word for it. It's chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And we've been learning from Christ's powerful words about how the world is upside down. And as his followers and his disciples, we need to live right side up. Right side up. Last week, we studied a section of the scripture. It's kind of a long section of chapter 6, but we skipped the middle of it. We skip verses 7 through 15 of that section so we can come back to it. We're going to come back to that now. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 6 of Matthew, we're going to read verses 7 through 15. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible, or you can look at it on your phone or whatever. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, 
but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Then it says this, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. We don't need a lot of words when we pray. What we need is a heart for God. Some people back then thought that if they, if they used a lot of words, it would mean that their prayer was more likely to be heard and to be answered. The heathens, which just means the idol worshipers, the people that were not uh, worshiping the one true God, they weren't uh, part of the Jewish uh, tradition, they weren't worshiping the one true God, they weren't god fears. they were out there worshiping all these idols, they would... Uh, do these prayers. And in those prayers, they would say these really long prayers. They had all these gods. I don't know if you know about this, but they had all these idols. And so what they do is they try to remember all their names. You don't want to forget one of them. You forget one of them, your crops die or whatever happens. You don't want to remember all of them. So they'd go through all of these different idols and they'd, and they'd say all their names and they'd ask for stuff from all of them. And they might repeat it a few times just over and over. And it was kind of this rote repetition of prayer. And and I don't think Jesus was specifically referring to how long your prayer is, but once again, as throughout this teaching that we've been hearing from Jesus and throughout the way he teaches, he's looking at the heart. He's looking at the heart. Don't act like idol worshipers who have no hope. Act like people who know you have a good father and know that your father understands and knows what you need. That's the heart you should have as you're praying. Not just lots of words. Look, lawyers use lots of words. I don't know if you know this, but they use lots of words. Scriveners, the guys who used to, uh, to do legal documents back in Britain back in the day, they would actually get paid by the word. You've wondered why those contracts and those documents are so long? They got paid by the word. So they started writing these really long things, and now it's pretty much the same. You get paid by the hour. And it's a pretty good racket if you think about it. You hire an attorney, he goes and he, and he says, okay, well, I'm going to get paid 500 bucks an hour, so I will take as many hours as I can to write this contract in just lots and lots and lots of words, right? And then you take that contract to the next person and say, here's the contract, and they can't read it or understand it because the lawyer who got paid $500 an hour made it as complicated as possible. So then they go pay their lawyer, and she goes through and says, well, I'm going to get paid $500 an hour. So she goes through the whole thing and does all the stuff so that she can explain it to you. And you and the other person finally get this little deal done, and the lawyers get rich. It's really quite a good deal for the lawyers, not for you. Um, but... Uh, they could, we could make those documents easy, just so you know. But why would we? We'd be out of a job, right? No, I'm just kidding. All the words in those long contracts are absolutely important, right? Of course, it should take 16 pages to say, I will pay you back $10,000 if you loan it to me for my car. Even though it only took me one sentence to say that just now, we need 16 pages of a document to do that, right? Don't pray like a lawyer. Don't pray like you're billing by the hour. Pray from the heart. Say what you need to say to your father. God doesn't need your lawyer prayer. What God wants is to hear from his children. He desires to hear from his children. My brother and my sister-in-law, Daniel and Anna Robinson, they live down in uh, Texas, in Austin, Texas. They have a beautiful daughter. Her name is Emily. And Emily has something called schizencephaly. Schizencephaly. And basically, Emily was born without part of her brain. It's a very rare condition. Just part of her brain is missing. And this affects Emily in a number of ways, but one of the ways it affects her is that she cannot talk. She can't speak like most people can. She, she talks, but only her parents understand most of what she says. Most of what she says would sound to you just like noise. It would just sound like noise. But Anna and Daniel, they know what Emily is saying. 
They know what Emily is saying because they love Emily, and they know what she needs, and they have known her and loved her all of her life. So when Emily makes a noise, they know what she wants or what she needs because they are her parents, and they want to take care of her. They want to talk to her because she's their daughter. And because they want to talk to her, they've learned that when she makes this particular noise, this is what she means in a way that you and I would never know that that's what she was saying. Because that's how much they care about her and love her, that they can differentiate between even these noises that most people can't understand. So that Emily can feel confident and secure in their love and in their affection. That when she talks, they know what she needs and they take care of her. God wants your child prayer. He wants your Emily prayer. Just speaking to God, knowing that he is the only one who loves you so fully that he understands your needs completely. He is the only one who can truly and fully provide for your needs. He created the order that way. He did not intend for me or you or your spouse or your kids or whoever it is that you look to or the political people or whoever it is to be able to fulfill all your needs. He is the only one that can do it. And he is the only one that you can pray to And he can totally, you can know and and be confident that he totally understands exactly what you need, even more than you do. That's what prayer is about. Don't heap up phrases. Don't just repeat stuff. He's not going to listen to you more because you said more words. That doesn't mean that your prayers won't be long sometimes. They very well might be. But don't just heap up phrases. Go to him with your heart. And I'm not saying that you should be doing these short prayers and not very often. You've got to pray without ceasing. You've got to pray like you want what you want, like you were going to your father and you were asking for what you want. He's not saying that you shouldn't pray and keep asking. He's definitely saying that. He's definitely saying that. God knows what you need, but he wants you to come to him. He wants to spend that time with you. He's not just an absentee father who takes care of your needs but doesn't want to hear from you. That's not who he is. He wants to be with you. He loves you. Some of you are old enough to have children or grandchildren who don't live at home anymore. And it kind of hurts a little bit to not have them around. And for a lot of people, when that child or that grandchild calls, it is such a blessing to hear from them. Unless they say something like, hey, I need some money. That's not always fun. Speaking of which, Dad, I need to talk to you after church today. For most people, it's a joy to get a call from their children or grandchildren. Right? God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you all the time, every day. He loves you so much. If you are a Christ follower, then you are his child. You're his child. If you're not a Christ follower, he wants you to become one. He wants to be in relationship with you. And part of that relationship is prayer. You should want to be with him. You should want to enjoy him. He created you to enjoy him as he enjoys you. So we don't pray with vain repetition, but we do not give up either. We do not give up. We pray and we pray and we pray. And when we don't first get what we're asking for, we keep praying until we get an answer because God will always answer us. Listen to this parable that Jesus spoke. This is Luke 18, 1 through 8. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. 
Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? We show we have faith when we continue to come to God and ask for an answer to our prayers. It shows that we believe that he is, we believe that he's listening, and we believe that he'll answer like he said he'll answer. When we stop, when we give up, what it says is we don't have faith. We don't believe. So we keep asking. Sometimes our timing is not God's timing, but if God has put something in your heart, you should pray for it, and you should not give up. He is not an unjust judge. He's not an unjust judge. He's your loving father. Even the unjust judge gives an answer eventually. God will answer your prayers. Now, it may not always be the answer we want. I can tell you that. My experience, which is getting longer and longer, says that although it's not the answer that I want all the time, it is always the best answer. It is always the best way. Tiffany and I, we have gotten lots of answers from God over time. Sometimes the answer has been yes. Sometimes the answer has been no. Sometimes the answer has been not right now. You got to wait for a while. Not all of those answers felt good at the time we got them, especially the no's and that you got to wait a while. But they've all been good once we saw more of God's plan and will revealed. The longer I go down, the more I see that, oh, if he had said yes here, he could never have said yes here. If God had said yes to some of the prayers that I had, some of the honest prayers in my heart, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be somewhere else because he would have led me in a different path. But in order for me to be here at this time in this place, he had to say no to some things. He had to say wait to some things. This will be true for you too. But you keep praying and you keep asking and he will answer. The next thing Jesus does in this passage in the scripture is he gives us a model prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with using this prayer as it's written. I have many, many times just prayed the Lord's prayer. But this prayer is a model prayer of what our prayer should sound like, okay? First, it starts with our Father in heaven, right? It starts with God. It's not about us. It's not all about us. It's all about God. We recognize the Father. We praise him. We're gonna, in this prayer, we're going to say three things to the Father first, right? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those are the first three things we're going to say. We see a pattern here. First, it's your, your, your to God. Then it's about our needs, ours, we, us. We start to use those words. And then we come back at the end and close again with your. Back to God. We recognize God again. Starts with our Father in heaven. God is awesome. He's our Father in heaven. You might notice it doesn't say my Father in heaven doesn't tell us to say, my Father in heaven. It says, our Father in heaven. We pray to God, the Father. We are addressing all of our Father. Every Christ follower all over the world is his adopted child. And when we pray and we say, our Father in heaven, we are recognizing that we are part of the greater body of Christ, the church, which has for 2,000 years been going forward in power against darkness, marching against the gates of hell, seeing people come and be saved and grow. That's who you're connecting with when you say, our Father, our Father. We are expressing unity 
For those of you who have read the scriptures who know Christ's words, you know that it was a big deal to Jesus Christ that we be unified, that we be one. So when we pray and we say, our Father, we're recognizing that unity that exists. That unity. But the idea in itself that we can say our Father is, I can't even begin to understand. You can't begin to understand how amazing and incredible it is to be able to refer to God as our Father. The creator of the universe is our Father, our adopted Father who's saying, call me Father. Listen to this, Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba. It's much more than just saying Father. Right? If you go to your father and say, Father, I would like to borrow the car, that's kind of a... Nerdy thing to say? I don't know. It's kind of uh, like, it's up here. It's not close, right? It's formal. Abba is more personal and familiar. It's a first word kind of word. Most babies, their first word is something like dada, right? Daddy, papa, abba. It's that kind of a word. It's that kind of a word. It is familiar. It is close. It's like saying daddy. We're crying out to him, Daddy, that's the kind of closeness we have that God has given us. But here's the thing. The world, the unbeliever, the lost, they don't know the Father. The unbeliever is not calling out in the power of the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. It's not happening. Listen to 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us. We are called God's children, and that is what we are. For this reason, the world does not recognize us, because it did not recognize him either. You and me, if you're a Christ follower, you and me are God's adopted children. We cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit of God. If you are not a Christ follower, that's not the relationship that you have with God. You would be his child only in the sense that you were created by him. But you are, he is not your Abba Father. You do not feel that relationship with him. You do not have that relationship with him. But don't you want it? If you're an unbeliever, or even if you're a believer, you're not living in that reality. Don't you want it? Don't you want to know the perfect father and to be his child? Don't you want to rest in him? Don't you want to know that he will wipe every tear away? as it says in Revelation 21, that he will love you, that he will care for you, that he knows everything that you have ever done, every single thought that you've had, and yet he sent his only begotten son to rescue and redeem you. We have an incredibly hard time just forgiving someone who steals something from us or, or talks badly about us. Our father knows everything you have ever done. Every horrible action, every horrible thought you have had, all the thoughts you've had against his children that he created in his image and likeness, and yet he sent his son to die for you. Don't you want that kind of a relationship with someone who loves you that much? Do you want that love unconditional, without measure, overflowing, eternal, and secure? Father 
loves you. But some of you who are here or who are watching online or who are listening to it or whatever, some of you don't know him. You're not his adopted children. You don't call him Abba. You don't call him Abba, Daddy, Father, through your spirit and the Holy Spirit. You've made yourself his enemies. He doesn't want that. He wants you to come home. Like the prodigal son returning. He wants you to come home and experience his love and be part of his family. The family of believers that all of us are. Us Christ followers together. This week is, is Thanksgiving week and what more could we be think, thankful for than for each other? What an amazing thing. I'm thankful for my family, for my wife, for my children, for my son-in-law, for, for all those people. But I'm also so thankful for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. What an amazing gift we have, being adopted children of God who together can cry out, Abba, Father, our Father in heaven. What an amazing thing, an awesome thing, because God is holy and pure and powerful, far, 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 and exceedingly far above all. But at the same time, he's our father. This is something that we should be humbled by. We should be in silent reverence before God, just thinking about the fact that God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, all-holy, and all our Father. Prayer is an incredible thing that we can talk to our Father God, that we can enter his throne room in prayer. How many of you all could just call up even like the mayor of Portland or the mayor of Vancouver and be like, hey, let's go out to dinner? Not many of you. Maybe a couple of you. That's just like our local city leaders. How much, can you call the governor? How many of you can do that? Probably even less of you could just call the governor and be like, let's hang out. Probably even fewer of you could call our, our national leaders or your favorite celebrities that everybody seems to gawk at and think that they're so wonderful, right? And these are just regular old people, just like you and me. There's nothing particularly valuable about the fact that they're famous or whatever. But you probably couldn't call them up and hang out with them. And yet you have access to the throne room of God. And do we treat it like the honor that it is? Do you cry tears of unspeakable joy that God, the creator of the universe, the most high, the ancient of days, the holy and loving God of the universe wants to spend time with you and with me? That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. But for many of us, we can rarely put more than a few minutes of our day into just spending time with him. That's the fact. We should probably take these things, these phones, out of our pockets and into the trash and cancel our Netflix and our Disney Plus and our whatever if those things are going to keep us from spending time with our Father. If somehow those things can be more important to us than going into the throne room of God. If you met the Queen of England, I doubt you would be sitting there tweeting while she was talking to you. If you would, you're super rude. Don't do that. You got to know queen etiquette if you're going to go meet the queen, right? But here's the thing. We often would rather check our Facebook than turn our face toward God. Sit there doing that. Oh, hey, I haven't prayed in four days. And as I wrote this and as I prepared this, I was convicted by it. 
We want the power of God in our lives, but we don't want to spend time with him. We want the result, but we don't want the effort. We want his power, but we're not acting like we want him. Takes your, your iPhone or whatever, hours generally, to charge, or your Android phone. I don't know how long it takes your Android. Why do you have an Android phone? Green bubble stuff. Just get, just don't, okay? Or don't text me, because I don't like the green bubbles. Just can't deal with it. I'm just kidding. You can have an Android phone. But seriously, don't text me. Okay, no. Anyway, you charge your phone for hours so that you can use it for one day. It takes hours of charge to run for one day, but we want to spend just a few minutes with God and think that is going to have us living in power all day? Come on. We wake up, we're like, God, thanks for the breakfast. Uh, give me a great day, and I'm out. Well, maybe I'll talk to you for a couple seconds when I eat my burrito at lunch, if I remember. That's wildly, wildly out of line with who we say we are as Christ followers. We should want to want God, not just to need him. We should want to want God for him, for who he is. He is so, so, so good to us. He's been so, so, so good to me. It is beyond my reckoning, my understanding that he would even think about me. Why should he care about me? Some dude out of billions of people on the earth right now and billions that have lived, living over in Vancouver, why does he care about me? Psalm 144.3, Lord, what are human beings that you should care about them? Or mortal man that you should think about him? We need to understand that when we say, our Father in heaven, it is an unspeakable joy and humbling honor to even get to say those words and to know that he hears us and listens to us. What an amazing thing. And then we say, hallowed be your name. According to D.A. Carson, to hallow means to sanctify, to make holy or to consider holy. What we're doing when we say is we're recognizing how holy and awesome and pure our Father is. We often, in the church these days, we stress the importance of closeness with our God and Father, that, that daddy relationship, and we should. It's an incredibly important relationship, but at the same time, we have to hold, at the same time as that, how powerful and awesome and holy and great and pure he is. We ought not to allow our father child relationship and the closeness of that and his intense love for us to cause us to lose our awe and reverence for him as the God of the universe. God is holy and powerful and awesome far beyond our imagining. We should always show him the reverence and worship that he deserves. That's where we need to be. So we say, hallowed be thy name to bring us into that place. Our father, boom, there we are, daddy. And then hallowed be their name, and I recognize you as the great God of the universe, and I recognize where I stand at that and how amazing it is that I can even have this conversation with you. That's where we start. Then we pray for his kingdom to come. We want to see the fulfillment of God's kingdom when all will be made new. You can read all about that in Revelation chapter 21. Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign. Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign. That is the hope of every Christ follower. 
Every one of us should be hoping for that. Listen, Revelation 22, 20 through 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This should be our constant hope and our constant prayer. Come Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord. Have we become too comfortable with this world that we aren't thinking about that, that we aren't praying for that, that we aren't hoping for that, that we aren't begging for that? That we desire something less than for Jesus to return quickly? I remember when I was young, it was a while back, and I, you know, I wanted Jesus to come, I guess. Like, that seemed okay, but I also kind of wanted to, like, get married and go to college and, you know, have a visit this place and what, whatever. The pleasures of the world that I thought were going to come as I got older. I wanted all those things too. And what that showed was, I mean, I understand it because I was dumb and I was a kid and whatever, but it showed how little I understood about what it means for Jesus to return. We want Jesus to return because here's the deal. Whatever you think you want to experience, whatever pleasures and joys that you think this broken, fallen world will offer you, it is all nothing, dust and ashes in comparison to being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to Jesus. It is all nothing compared to the fulfillment of all God's promises when all will be made new. There is no pleasure on earth that can begin to compare with what Jesus has planned for us. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Don't get comfortable here. Don't do it. Look for, ask for, pray for God's kingdom to come. Wanting to wait here for the pleasures of the world? Like, just hang on a little while, Jesus. I just want to get that promotion. I just want to take that Hawaii vacation. That's like being a homeless person waiting out behind the store, and somebody drives by and says, hey, I'll take you to the nicest restaurant in town. You go, hang on, wait. They're about to throw the two-day-old donuts out, and some of them might not have mold on them. That's where you are. That's how, that's how locked into craziness it is when we think that we want the pleasure of this world rather than for Jesus to return. We want him to come. We want him to come now. He offers joy, unspeakable, eternal, beyond what you could even imagine. Literally, he is, in this fallen world, your brain is, is such that it cannot even imagine what he has for you. You're not capable of understanding how good it's going to be. That's pretty good because I can understand a lot. I can think of a lot of really good things. And I can't even imagine, nor has anyone ever heard or seen or had to enter in their heart how great the things are that Jesus is going to do for us. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is good, right? We want to know his will. We want to do his will. We want others to do his will. And make no mistake, God's will is going to be done, period. But we want it done on earth like it is in heaven. You know how it is in heaven? Without sin, 
without lies and deception, without pain, without sorrow. We want God's perfect will to be done perfectly in perfection. That's what we're looking for. His will to be done on earth as is in heaven. It goes right along with your kingdom come. We want to see his will done and we want to take away all that's in its way. Which means we, if we're going to pray that, we have to live out his will. And the easiest way to start doing that is to follow his commands that Jesus Christ has given us. Just right here, right? The Son of God, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, has spoken clearly to us his commands. If we just took what's in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew and just did those things perfectly, I think things would go pretty well. What do you think the world would look like? Pretty good. That's not even like, that's just three chapters of the whole Bible. If we could just concentrate on that and do it, we'd be doing pretty well. Do you want to know God's will? We're learning it. We're studying it. Do it. That's what we're praying. God, help us to do your will. And the next three sections of the prayer are about our needs. Our needs. It says, give us this day our daily bread. We're asking God to take care of our physical needs. Lord, take care of our physical needs. Not just, not just me. Don't give me this day my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. All your children. But usually, we want more than just our daily bread. Usually, we want many days of bread. The Israelites got manna in the desert, right? And they got it one day at a time. One day at a time, they would get bread. And they were allowed to collect just that day. On the Sabbath, they could collect for two days so they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. But they would collect one day. If they collected more than one day, the bread would go rotten. God wanted them to rely on him every day for that day's bread. See, that takes a special kind of relationship, a special kind of faith relationship to depend on God to provide for you each day. But that's not how we are. We want enough to last a lifetime. Or even better, two or three lifetimes, 10 lifetimes, 100 lifetimes, right? I want enough for my children's children's children to never have to worry about anything and to be completely secure to be able to take care of themselves. We don't want to rely on God. We want to have enough that we don't have to rely on God. When we're little, two years old, we totally rely on our parents. We totally do, right? We figure they're going to do what they're going to do. You want to eat? Mom or dad are going to have to feed you. You wake up in the morning, and you're like, okay, I'm not in control of all this. Those tall people are running the show, right? They're going to be the ones who, if, I'm, if they don't change my diaper, I'm going to stink. If they don't feed me, I'm going to be hungry. They got to do it all, and you just, you just trust your parents to do it day by day. My parents kids never came to me and were like, hey, can I get two days of food? I'm just going to pack it there underneath my crib there. Don't know that I trust you, Right? I might, none of my kids came to me at two years old and said, I don't trust you, Daddy. Give me enough diapers to get through this whole pee in my pants thing. And then I want enough money to get me to 18 years old. That's as long as you've got to take care of me. Or for these days, 30 years old for the kids these days. <laughs> Kidding. Don't get angry. It's only partially true. I, I, <laughs> I, I, kids don't come to their parents and say, look, I don't trust you to give me things out as I need them. I want the security of knowing I can take care of it all myself. That's not how children are. That's why one of the things that Jesus tells us is if we want to enter the kingdom, we got to come like children. Children depend on their parents every day. Every day. That's where we should be. But we want security. We want security. We think if God gives us enough right now, we'll have security for a year, for two years, for 10 years, for a lifetime. 
But here's the thing. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. People all over the world throughout time, if you know anything about history, you know the people who have had security have lost it in an instant. They've had wealth and lost it in a moment. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, Jews in Nazi Germany, people in the Great Depression. I could go on and on and on. Every city that's ever been taken over or occupied or whatever, the people who have had wealth have lost it all in a day, in a moment. They were rich and in an instant they had nothing. What are you promised by money? You are not promised security. You are not promised security. We worry and we argue and we fight and we comment on Facebook about who our next political functional savior will be. Who's going to protect our interests and make sure that we have enough money and make sure that our economy... Da, 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 da. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Look, God is the one who will provide for you. God is the one who will provide for you. God. He's the one who's going to provide for you. I say it three times so that you get it in your head and I get it in mine. Even when we make mistakes, and I have made many mistakes, God continues to provide. He is our Father. We need not look to governments. We need not look to other sources of people to save us or to provide for us or to protect us or to provide security. God is our provider. And he's asking us to come to him every day and say, get me through today. Tomorrow, that'll worry about itself. Give me what I need today. I trust you today and I'll trust you tomorrow. That's what he wants. For those of you who would think, hey, if I just won the lottery, if I just got that better job, if I just got whatever, then I'd be more secure. Let me just tell you something. Let me give you a little hope. Let me give you a little peace. You ready? You are already secure. You are already secure. God will take care of you and your children and your children's children if it takes that long before he returns. He will take care of you. He promises to do so. I'm not saying you'll never you'll never miss a meal or you'll never have difficulty. That might happen. But if you trust God, he will take care of you and give you what you need. Remember, he's eternal. He understands the whole show. Trust him. Trust him. Listen, you already live in a country where you have clean water, hot water that runs right out of your sink. If you went back to the people in the first century and you were like, check this out, and the water's coming out, they'd be like, woo, right? What? I got to go down to this well and I got to get the water, I put it on my head and I got to balance it all, go back to the thing so that I can have a little bit of water. Hopefully it's not ruined so that we all get the plague and die. Right? That's how it was for them. Now we're just like, shh, and the water comes out. Hot water. Even in other places in the world, if you've been to Honduras, you would know that you turn that shower on, it ain't coming out hot. Now it does, it does now. We go to a place, just for those of you who are thinking about coming to Honduras, going to the meeting, we now have a place that we stay that has hot water heaters, but that's for us gringos. We put those in there. When we used to go, my wife and I used to go years ago to Honduras, you had basically a couple choices. Choice one, be dirty. Choice two, take some wet wipes, hit three or four of your areas, and try not to smell that bad, okay? Choice three was you turn that shower on and you go, and the cold water comes down. Choice four, there's like a bucket, like a big 80-gallon barrel, probably had oil or nuclear waste or something in it, and they filled it with water, cold water, because they don't have hot water. And you go to that bucket, you put a little soap on it, and you take this little smaller bucket, and you pour it. That was how you did it. Or if you were really brave, they had these things called widow makers. 
These are shower heads that they put on the shower head. That they're, they're electric, like 220. They plug it in. In the shower, there's like a cord going to it. In the shower, that's why they call them widowmakers, because you don't want to touch them. And you turn it on, and sometimes they work, and when they do, it makes the water somewhat warm. Those are your choices. Guess what? That's still how they live. In 2019, most Hondurans are taking cold showers. If you ask them, they'll tell you they prefer cold showers. I'm like, yeah, right. If you had hot water for a while, I don't think you'd be saying that. But that's tons of people in the world don't even have that. You have that. You probably drove here today in a car, a truck, a motorcycle, something like that. You probably, you probably didn't walk. Maybe some of you did. But most of you probably didn't. You probably have a roof over your head tonight. You probably had breakfast this morning. You probably had dinner last night. And things are probably looking pretty good that you're going to eat again today. You probably have enough clothes to wear a different outfit every day of the week, if not for longer. Some of you ladies have enough shoes, you could go a different one until the day you die right now. I've seen your closets. Crazy. How many shoes do you need, people? Anyway, that's whatever. My own issue. All right. And yet, with all that, it's still hard for us to say, give us today our daily bread. Not more. Give us our daily bread. What we want to say is, give us today our lifetime of needs so we can stop asking you for anything and take care of ourselves. And then, for some of us, when we do get a little extra, we can put a little something away. Some people like to convince themselves that because of that, they have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They're taking care of themselves. Some of them even look down on others who don't have as much. People who think that, who think that they're self-made, what a joke. God's done it all. Listen, I don't know if you've ever known a college freshman. Some college freshmen, not all of them, are in this situation where their parents are still footing the bill for everything. They pay for college or they take out loans for their kids. They give them, they pay for the cell phone, they pay for the car, they pay for the insurance, they send them some money for an allowance, but they're 18 years old and, they, and they're in college and they say things like, I'm an adult now. I can make all of my own decisions. I'm taking care of myself now. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? Your parents are paying for everything. The only difference between now and then is instead of sleeping in the bed inside their house, you're sleeping in the bed inside the dorm that they're paying for. And yet, you think that you're now taking care of yourself. That's how silly that we sound, even sillier, when we think that we are self-made people instead of falling on our faces with gratitude for everything that Christ has given us. Every single thing that God has given us has come from him. It's a good gift. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Okay? Whoever you are, if you think you've done it on your own, you are deceiving yourself and building a false pride that will lead to destruction. What you have, you were given. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, right? We know about common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. God has done everything that's good. If you have a breath today or a meal today or you've got a roof over your head today, it's because God has done it for you. Listen to what scripture says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Anybody who boasts, you see this with, with wealthy people sometimes. They'll write the book about how they did it through sheer hard work. I'm sure they did work hard and whatever, but give me a break. First of all, nobody makes it on their own. Nobody. 
you all, this is a social world. God has made a relational world. So everybody who's done anything has done it with the help of many, many other people. And certainly with the grace of God. You have nothing, nothing that you have not been given. When we ask for our daily bread and nothing more, it shows that we have a trust and a faith in God that he will provide. It helps us to see ourselves as eternally safe, eternally cared for. Day by day, God will provide from now until forever. Money fades away. There are countries that have had such crazy inflation that in one day, they just said things like, just take four zeros off of your money. If you had 10,000 bucks yesterday, you got a dollar today. That's, that's what's happened in some countries. It's just, money has become worthless. Money will not save you. It will not provide you security. But our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. It's all God's. We go to the father and ask for our daily bread that we might be filled with thankfulness and gladness of heart when we receive it. And then we can ask again tomorrow. And if we trust in him instead of leaning on our own understanding, trying to chase after the security that the world promises with wealth, then we will learn what it means to truly rest and have peace in our Father. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. So we pray for our daily bread and nothing more. And we receive it with gladness, and we'll have peace. I've done many times in my life I've had to pray, literally, literally for that day. And I ran a business for a long time. And if people didn't come in and, and pay us, we didn't have any money. And there were days where that bank account went bloop, 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 bloop. And it was like, well, if somebody doesn't, you know, I hope somebody gets arrested today. I mean, no offense. Somebody who has money gets arrested today cash preferably or whatever so that we could get paid because if we don't whatever we just had to pray for that daily bread and God always came through you can tell I have not missed too many meals right he takes care of us he takes care of us Whew. next we asked him to forgive our debts right our sins we're asking God for forgiveness for renewal of our relationship with him we need this every day we need to know that our relationship is good with him. We need to remember all that he's done for us. If you read Psalm 51, David has just murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Uriah's wife, and he's been called on it, and he's brokenhearted. He's got a broken and contrite heart, and he's coming to the Lord, and he's saying, forgive me. Create in me a, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit in me. That's where we need to be. We need to be, God, we want to be right with you. We need forgiveness. And we need to forgive others. We need to remember all that Jesus Christ has done to set us free from sin. We need to remember that. And we need to remember that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we need to take that and say, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to forgive others as well. Sin is like debt. If you've ever had a lot of debt, you know what it feels like. It's not very fun to have a lot of debt, to be indebted to someone. Now, if you've ever been forgiven a debt, you know what that feels like. It's an amazing feeling. I've been forgiven debts in the past. I've even had massive debt forgiven for me before. 
And I can tell you that the feeling is very humbling. And it produces, or it should produce, great thankfulness, both to the person who's forgiven the debt, but most especially to God. Most especially to God. We need to be forgiven our debts, our sins, but we also need to be debt forgivers. Not debt holders, debt forgivers. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to give forgiveness. Now, we're going to dive deeper into that for a second at the end of the message here in just a little bit, so I'm going to move on. The next thing is to ask for protection from temptation and from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. We're asking God to take care of our moral righteousness needs, our spiritual protection. Okay? Now, it's not, we don't say, God, lead us not into temptation because if we didn't pray that, God would be like, well, I'm going to lead you right into temptation. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's, an, it's a literary device. It's, you're using the negative to suggest the positive. What do we really pray for? If we're saying lead us not into temptation, we're saying lead us into righteousness. Lead us into righteousness. That's where we want to go. Lead us not into temptation, but into righteousness. That's what we need, righteousness, and the blessing that comes with righteousness, with following the commands of God, and we need him to lead us and empower us to live that righteous life. We need to submit to his leading. So we're asking him, lead us, not into temptation, into righteousness. Let us be righteous, and we need to understand the spiritual war that is going on in this fallen world, and that we need the protection from the evil one. We need to be led by God into righteousness and to have his protection. Listen to James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, submit to his leading. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we submit to God's leading and we resist the devil, we'll have victory. The devil will flee, and we'll be close to God. We have victory in Christ. We don't have to fear anything. So we pray these things. Lead us not in temptation, but into righteousness. Keep us Keep the evil one away from us. Keep us from evil. Help us to resist the devil because he has to flee. That's who we are as the church, marching against the gates of hell, resisting the devil. Submitting to God. We're asking him to lead us. Lead us. Let us, let us experience the victory of righteousness and of safety and protection from Satan every single day. And at the end of the prayer, we again honor or recognize our Father is a king, powerful and glorious. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For yours, for yours. What he's saying there is, listen, for, as in because. I pray all these things because yours is the power and the glory. Yours is the kingdom. Yours, because that's who you are. All these things I've prayed, I believe can be done. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. See, if that wasn't true, why even bother praying the first part? It's because those things are true that we believe the first part can be done. We come back. We start with God. We end with God. We honor him at the beginning. We honor him at the end. And then we say, amen. So be it. It's true. Let it be done. And then the scripture for today ends with this. For if you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's serious stuff. Do we have a heart to forgive? As is not unusual, God gave me some real life to chew on this week related to this passage, forgiveness and so on. I got scammed. I'll tell you a quick story. I don't have a lot of time, but I'm sure you'd like to hear about me getting scammed, so you'll wait a few extra minutes. So the other day, I was driving my car 
and I was parked over here next to, you know, we have that dumpster, that big blue dumpster. We've been throwing all this stuff as we've been doing construction. And I forgot that the dumpster was there. And I was thinking it was all clear behind me. So I put my car in reverse and zzz, boom. I hit the corner of that dumpster right in the middle of my bumper. Put a nice crease right down the middle. Well, that wasn't good. And some days later, I was at a Costco, the Costco up here in the parking lot, and a couple guys, this guy comes up to me and he says, hey, I work at the local Chevy dealerships and so on. I'm an auto body guy. I can help you out with that dent in your bumper and get that fixed for you. <clears throat> I'm like, all right, sure. And he quoted me a price. It wasn't free by any means, but it, it was cheaper than it would have cost me to, to go and do the insurance claim and have my insurance go up and all the rest of that. So I said, sure, let's go, let's go fix it. So he came over here to the church and he started working on it. And he, and he did it, and then when he was done, he put the stuff over the top of everything, saying, this is, this is going to protect the new touch-up paint that's on there and whatever, so in a day, you'll take that stuff off and, and whatever. And, and on the front of my car, I have this thing called a splitter, and it's made out of fiberglass, and it had broken, too. So he said, I'm, I ordered you one of those. We're going to do that. So the total price, the splitter itself was like 500 bucks. The total price like $1,200. So I, we go over to the bank. I get him $1,200, okay? Now, I don't have, that's not like I've got lots of $1,200s in the bank, Okay? It's a lot of money to me. May not be to you. If so, let's see that in your tithe. But for me, $1,200 is a lot of money, okay? So I give him this $1,200 thinking, okay, but I needed to do this to fix the car. Okay. Well, the next day I go to wash that stuff off, and what I find out is all this guy did was put this cheap putty inside the thing on my bumper that actually ruined my bumper, it didn't, it didn't fix it. It actually ruined it, ruined the paint. So I'm actually going to have to get a new bumper. And the number he gave me to call so that he could come back with a part that he ordered for me, for some reason, we could call it right now. It's not going to be answered. I can tell you. I called, no answer. I text, hey, haven't heard back from you. What's going on with this? And then I go online and I find out that this is a super common scam. Guys will come up to you in a parking lot. They'll say they can fix this thing. They, do, they all do the same thing. Oh, we'll do it in about a half hour. They, put, they use the putty. They put something over it. They tell you in 24 hours, wash it off. It doesn't wash up. It ruins your car. Common scam. Now, I felt pretty dumb, but that's not uncommon. So I, I, I felt like I, I was pretty dumb, but I was also not super happy with these fellows. You know, I wasn't thinking the best thoughts about them. I was tested in my love for enemies and my forgiveness. I think God wanted me to be if I'm going to be preaching about it. But God worked in my heart, and I realized that because, you know me, I'm like, I'm going to sue these guys. <laughs> right? well, you might have got me this time, but we'll see what happens when the judge comes out. Okay? Go see Judge Judy about this. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? No. What I, what I need to be doing Praying for them? What does it look like to love them? They're in this position where that's what they have to do, and they're even in the place where they would do it at a church to a pastor. Not that I'm something special, but most people kind of have a thing about that, you know. They're somewhere they, they ought not to be. They're certainly not any worse than me and the sins that I've done, so I need to pray for them. I need to love them. I need to forgive them. I need to move forward, and God's helped me to do that. And I know, listen, that's not anything near that big of a deal to forgive compared to some of the things I've been called and commanded to forgive in my life. And it's certainly 1200 bucks for something on your car. It's just a car. It's just money. It's not a big thing to forgive compared to some of what you've had to forgive other people. There's been abuse, oppression. There's been 
there's been stealing, there's been uh, betrayal, there's been violence, all kinds of things that have been done to people in this room. I realize there's a lot more to forgive than just a few hundred bucks. Nevertheless, we're commanded to forgive because we have been forgiven so much and we're supposed to have a heart like Christ. Listen to this. We close out with this story that Jesus tells. Matthew 18, 23 through 35. This is out of the ISV version. That is why the kingdom from heaven may be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle the accounts, a person who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Because he couldn't pay, his master ordered him, his wife, his children, everything that he owned to be sold so that payment could be made. Then the servant fell down and bowed low before him, saying, Be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. The master of that servant had compassion and released him, canceling his debt. But when that servant went away, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, seized him by the throat, and said, Pay me what you owe. Then his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will repay you. But he refused and had him thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were very disturbed and went and reported to their master everything that had occurred. Then his master sent for him and told him, You evil servant, I canceled that entire debt for you because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers until he could repay the entire debt. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your hearts. The Bible tells us, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You know what 10,000 talents is? I did the math. $14 billion. That's what the debt was that he owed. $14 billion. A talent is basically as much as a person would make in a lifetime. Normal work would make in a lifetime. And he owed 10,000 talents, an unpayable debt. The guy who owed him money owed him $14,000, roughly, 100 denarii. A day's work for an average person times 100, $14,000. One one millionth, one one millionth of the amount of debt that he had been forgiven. I think that's significant. And he was going to choke this guy out and throw him into prison for one one millionth of what he had just been forgiven. We need to understand that when we're being asked to forgive. D.A. Carson writes this, There is no forgiveness for the one who does not forgive. How could it be otherwise? His unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that he has never repented. It's hard, but it's true. If you will not forgive others, how can you say that you have even begun to understand and be thankful for what God has done for you? Jesus died for you. He died for you. And yes, your sin is enough to have Jesus go to the cross. Your sin is enough to put Jesus Christ on the cross. He would have had to do it just for you because that's what your sin, that was what the wages of your sin was, death. The sacrifice of Jesus to redeem you, was, was, it was just for you. It would have been enough just for you. And he's forgiven you and he And he did that for you. And that should melt your heart so much that it should be much easier for you to forgive others. If you're having a hard time with that, and I know people do, meet with me, meet with the other pastors here, meet with the elders. 
Let us help you through it. Because we are commanded to forgive and we must do it. We cannot hold on to bitterness in our heart. It ends up eating us, not hurting the other person anyway. We're commanded to forgive. The heart that does not forgive is a heart that does not truly understand the forgiveness that it has received. And you don't want to be that person. So forgive as the Lord forgave you. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, It really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.